right, riddle me this, Kev. What's one of the first upgrades you should do to your vehicle? What is it? What do you go for? Well, you might think power, but ultimately, from a smart and safe perspective, definitely the brakes. Yeah, no doubt. Upgraded braking systems can really transform a vehicle's performance and honestly give you better peace of mind behind the wheel in any situation. You know, from the track to off-road trails, even the morning commute, every single vehicle deserves performance brakes at an affordable price. And no matter what your vehicle or driving style, PowerStop has complete brake upgrade kits for you. So head to PowerStop.com, fill in your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use brake finder to be matched with complete kits and components that are low-dust, noise-free, and feature upgraded stopping power. That's right. You could join the thousands of other drivers that have already transformed their vehicle into a stopping powerhouse today with PowerStop. PowerStop.com, brake upgrades made easy. Welcome to Two Guys Garage Podcast, a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Productions. It's the Two Guys Garage Podcast, Kevin Bird, Willie B, and I'm excited to have one badass dude. Not only guy as far as the man behind the machine, the driver of a, of a funny car, but just a badass in general. Fast Jack Beckman joined us today and you know, Jack Beckman's been a longtime friend of mine, Kev. He's been a buddy for a number of years, man. How'd you guys first end up getting connected? So, well, through, believe it or not, I've hosted the Mile High Nationals here in Denver, Colorado for a number of years. I met him through that. But ironically, through a TV show. So I was on a TV show called Pink's, right? I met him there. We started conversations. I used him for another TV show where he was kind of like the Stig, you know? He was this driver, and I put him in two, you know, Ford Mustangs. You'll appreciate that. Um, and they were racing, and I, I basically had a real hot dog from off the street fight his way into a mano a mano matchup against fast Jack Beckman in two identically matched cars. And, man, let me tell you, that it was a hell of a show. It was fun. Nice. That's such an awesome guy, man. He's so like determined strong and at the heart of it he's just such a huge family man yeah he's a guy yeah. that you could just like high five and kind of like bro hug yeah man you know a lot of people would you know, a lot of people would say that i bet his you know number one thing that he'll tell you he's done is run 330 plus miles an hour but i guarantee you if, if you ask him man when he was diagnosed with grade level 3b lymphoma cancer that you know kind of invaded his body from from the hip to the neck and he had to go you know, so much treatment, man, it, it would be tough to argue that anybody could return not just better from that and stronger from that, but more focused. And Jack really did, man. He returned to the sport that he loved, a, a tougher competitor because of it. Oh, he's a fighter on the track and in life itself, man. Now, think about Top Fuel. To me, that's one of the most exciting motorsports, like the most powerful, just raw, nasty, in your face, right? Thousands yeah. and thousands and thousands of horsepower just screaming for less than four seconds going down a track. Like you said, 335 mile an hour top in, top speed. Yeah, man. So here in Denver, Colorado for the Mahi Nationals, I've had the fortune of being a so this is home for me in my radio career. I've been doing radio on the morning show out here for a couple decades now. Well, over the last 15 years, I've got to host 
the Mile High Nationals. So I got to be down on the track while these guys are taking off. They'll give passes, and you can pay some VIP package and get on a stage that they roll out kind of close to it. But I'm down there on the track right beside these guys as they launch, you know, not not only you know, top fuel funny cars, but the rails. I mean, to feel what these cars can do, the way they can not only shake up your innards, man, but dude, they, they can make your eyes where where you it's impossible to focus. It's like it's such a unique and cool feeling. It's it's like a roller coaster ride times a hundred, you know? Yeah, if you've never been to a top fuel, you have to go. Like you'll you'll see it go by and you won't see it. And you'll be like, what the hell just happened to me? Your whole everything just got yeah. shook and shaken and flipped upside down, you know? Like, and you'd be like, "Damn, that was awesome! Let's do it again." And, right. and you won't see it the second time because it'll be a blur. Yeah. And, and then I you got to go it. down in the pits, man. You got to see them tear those things down, go through all the parts, do all the buildup, man. It's just a big thrash. And then make sure you're standing right there when they fire it up. Yes, you got to. <laughs> and hold your breath and close your Woo! eyes. I love it, man. I love it. That's what dreams are made of. Yeah. Uh, squirt, what? Squirt a little alcohol or something in there. Blah, 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 <laughs> and then the nitro comes on. Pop, da, pop, da, pop, da, pop, da, pop, da. It's awesome. And the fog so, comes a out. A question for you, man. Did you have a driver as a kid that you used to always like follow? Did you have a driver? And was there ever a point in time where you know you were close enough to top field or funny cars that you had a guy you would put your hat on? You know, like that's my boy. Yeah, I had several of them, but I think, uh, you know, and this goes out to all drivers, you know, famous people, whatever. But I remember uh, getting to do the handshaking and high-fiving with John Force. So at some point in my life, you know, Gator Nationals, right, getting to kind of hang with that personality, that yeah. kind of high-level guy, and to have his, you know, positive reaction. I'm like, all right, dude, I'm a fan for life. You're you're a cool dude, man, you know? Yeah. How, how about you? Who was your guy or girl? So... <sighs> Well, originally, I know up, one of it, it was it was Don Garlitz, right? Yeah. Don Garlitz was he was as a little kid, man. I had all the memorabilia and all the, you know, T-shirts, and I actually dropped a tear when Shirley Modowney beat him, which is kind of funny, man. It's a funny story because I literally was like, "Dad, I don't understand," you know. And my dad had a funny sense of humor about it. And he's like, "Well, you know, it it had this this coming from a guy that." You know, this is a sad joke, but he, he used to always tell me that women always outlive men because they were always late. So that's why women live longer than men. So, you know, take, <laughs> is that how that, that works? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he man, he rubbed that in. I shed a tear because Shirley Moe Downey beat, you know, Big Daddy Don Garlis. But later in life, I became really, you know, really good friends. I say friends loosely because he did kick me out of his camp one time uh, because I beat him five times in a row. And that's Kenny Bernstein. We used to oh. do a thing with the radio station here called Race the the Bud King. And you would have to race a series of listeners, and then you would race Kenny Bernstein in like in similar cars. And it would be the, you know, the drag strips got challengers up here. So, you know, Camaros. So I was the only guy for five years in a row, every single place Kenny would go to, he would win. When he came to Denver, I beat him five years in a row. And after that, he kicked me out. And I raced his son, Brandon, the next year and beat him too. It was awesome. Man, you got to beat Kenny Bernstein, dude. That's pretty yeah. tough. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun, man. So I was a big Garlitz fan and, uh, you know, growing up in Florida, going to college down there, right? His museum was right next to us. So huge influence with Garlitz. So I think between him and Force, I uh, got to do behind the scenes tour with Don Garlitz himself, man. So, I mean, that was a huge burn into my sort of persona and memory bank. So, 
Yeah, probably two yeah. of my big ones, but there's so many that they're just so awesome and it's just week after week watching them battle it out. Some of my best memories growing up for sure, man. Yeah, man. Well, look, this guy is not only a character, he's just one of those guys that's great to call a friend, great because he he shoots straight, man. Whether he's behind the wheel, talking smack, his favorite sports team, or you know, just life in general, you always know what you're going to get, and that's an honest, upfront answer from the one and only Jack Beckman. So without further ado, let's join him. Jack, A, hey, welcome to the show, man, and tell everybody the great news. What just happened out in Pomona? Yeah, we wrapped up the season the way you're supposed to, right? In my backyard, my home track, and it's the first time I've won Funny Car at Pomona. I've got two Winter Nationals trophies from Supercomp, but I've never put the Nitro Car in the winner's circle. So our SRT Hellcat, right to the top in Funny Car, and we wound the year up as uh, number two in points. So good way to end it. Way to go, my man. <laughs> That's awesome. Jack, yeah, you know, I got to tell you, you've been one of my, you know, heroes, legends forever. You know, this is cool news, uh, you know, to have the big win and awesome to have you on the show. Well, hey, first of all, Kevin and, and Willie, thank you guys, because before the phone rang for the interview, I was getting the ladder out to hang Christmas lights. My little eight-year-old Layla is totally into the holidays. Like, I think Halloween's her favorite, uh, but she could not wait till Thanksgiving that we had to put the tree up, and I got to go hang lights as soon as I'm done with you guys. So you kind of bought me about a 20-minute reprieve. I'm right behind you. I got a three-year-old. He's he's knocking on the door, so we're we're putting up one little thing at a time to kind of appease him. And so far, that's yeah, working. Well, if, if, if I were you, I'd build up your credit score and call Amex and see what your credit card balance is. <laughs> right uh, you know, it's funny because my kid's only eight months old. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give her, like, d diapers and, you know, wrap up a couple of her, her, her socks. She's not going to know anything this year, but next year I'm in for it, I'm sure. So I don't... It progressively gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack, man, you know, it's funny because – so much of racing, you know, we, we talk to guys like Tom Bailey, talk to guys like you. So much of racing is inherently from our, you know, from our fathers passed down from, like, I'm sure your dad got you into her, got you into a car. I'm sure, you know, as much as your daughter's. Yeah, it's in the family. My mom's brother, my uncle, John Jorgensen, who's an absolute encyclopedia on drag racing. I mean, the, the guy's just amazing. He's the one that took me to my first drag race. He's the one that was absolutely diehard about it. My dad was a hot rod guy. My dad lives in outside of Dallas right now. He's 82. But in 1962, he drove from Maryland out to California to get a job in the speed equipment industry. Wound up taking a job at Lockheed because he had a security clearance and they paid a hell of a lot more money. Met my mom cruising Van Nuys Boulevard in his 63 vet. Had my brother in 65, had me in 66. And that was kind of the end of his racing dreams. <laughs> so so how did you get involved then was it from your uncle or did you go kind of on solo my uncle took my brother and i to orange county international raceway in uh, probably summer of 73 i was seven years old and i was hooked instantly and the, the crazy thing about that is i was absolutely enamored with everything about drag racing i just struck a chord in me it gave me goosebumps but i wasn't into touching the cars it wasn't until i was 15 that I actually started to pick up wrenches. Now, my brother would help my dad out in the garage all the time, but I was out racing my bicycle or BMX or playing baseball in the street with my buddies. The mechanical thing just didn't appeal to me until just about the time I was ready to start taking driver's training. And the, the irony on this is that car that got me turned on to working on stuff, the 68 SS396 El Camino, yeah. 
Um, my dad bought it from the original owner in 79. I bought it from my dad for the same thousand he paid for it in, in 81 when I was still 15. I just got an extra paper out and I saved all my money. And that's the thing that I started tinkering with. Well, April of this year, I just got that car back on the road and uh, it's going to be in Hot Rod Magazine. They shot it in August. So I don't know, probably going in the next two or three months. And I tracked down the original owner. I cruised the car out to Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, California. Nice. He drove down and I got a picture of him sitting in the driver's seat for the first time in 40 years. So who bought the burgers, you or him? You know what? We spent so damn much time walking around. I, I did have dinner that night, but I ate dinner with a guy named Tommy Ivo. My uncle came out. A lot of my uh, uh, friends that I grew up with, that, that happened to be my birthday. That was June 28th. And ironically, it also happened to be 51 years in one day from the day he was handed the key to that car at Rancho yeah. Chevrolet in Reseda, California. I, hey, I want to know what it was like watching him get in that car and drive it. How was that for you after this whole process and the headache, tracking it down, restoring all that? What was that moment like for you? Oh, wait a minute, Willie. I never said I let him drive it. Oh, I, I know you did. It. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, you I, I absolutely would have if he wanted to, but you've got to kill for a parking spot. Friday nights at Bob's Big Boy. Like, right. if, if we would have moved, it would have been gone. But it was just, <clears throat> it was kind of one of those surreal moments for me because that car had wound up sitting for 22 years, and I never intended it for, for it to do that. But I got a used dragster back in 91, started running that all the time. And the last time I, I drag raced the El Camino, I think it was like 93, sat for a couple years. Then I tried to put it back on the street in 97. I literally put 10 miles on it. And then it sat until 2019, so 22 years it sat. Um, and for three of those years, it was over at my friend's storage building. So it was out of sight, out of mind. Right. I'm married now. I have two kids now. And honest to God, I didn't have the time or the motivation to do anything with it. But when I brought it back home from my buddy's storage building, I opened the glove compartment, and I still had dated June 28, 1982, my temporary driver's license was in there. And that's when the memories wow. just start flooding back. My, yeah. you know, my parents divorced when I was 10, but I left the car with my mom when I went in the Air Force. So she had it for seven months while I was at uh, basic training and tech school. And she'd take it out and cruise it once a month. Uh, I'll, I'll never have another car my mom drove. I'll, I'll, I'll likely never own another car that my dad drove. Uh, and then it's going to drive in movies in the, the, Southern California, you know, in the San Fernando Valley back in the 80s, uh, the street racing scene back then. There's just all those memories as a young man growing up that are tied to that one vehicle. It's a pretty special piece of equipment. So what was your fastest drag time in that car versus your fastest drag time in a top fuel car? <laughs> well, let me walk you through it. My, my first run down a drag strip ever was in Lubbock, Texas. I drove the car from Granada Hills out to Clovis, New Mexico, where I was stationed. And I have still got my original time slip from 1986. It was a 15.06 at 93 miles an hour. Uh, eventually with a, with a roller cam 454 nitrous, that car went 10.15, 134. Um, and, and it felt fast, I'm going to tell you. Now, for me to go 134 in the funny car, it means it smoked the tires at 95 feet, and I coasted the rest of the way. 
How does it feel, you know, I, you look at some of these ETs, man, and I knew what a big moment it was for me to be in a 200-mile-an-hour club. I felt pretty proud about that. But you're going 321, 323.27. Three, no, no, like, three, 335, buddy. 335. Yeah, but, yeah it's your fastest, but you got a, you got a million runs in the 320s. You got 330. How does that feel? How does that – like, do you know the difference between that and 250? Do you know the difference between that and 290? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I, now that we're running thousand foot, which we've been doing since 2008 at, at nearly every track, I can sneak a peek at the scoreboard because I've already deployed the parachutes and lifted off the throttle. Um, the first 150 feet of the run, you can't necessarily tell if you're on a world record run or a, or a B minus run. It's from 150 feet to 450 feet where it's starting to put the timing back in the car and feed the different stages of the clutch in. What, that G meter is what your butt feels. So if you feel it crushing you back in the seat for that amount of time and it doesn't drop a cylinder or spin the tires, you know that the ET is going to be pretty good. And you're right. You're, and now you look at an ET slip and it reads 320 miles an hour and you're like, oh, well, it put a cylinder out at 850 feet. Oh, well. Okay, hold on, hold on one second, Jack. I'm, hold that thought. We're going to go to a break right now. It's the Two Guys Garage podcast. Will we come back more with Fast, Jack Beckman, Kevin Bird, and Willie B? We'll see you on the other side. All right, welcome back to Two Guys Garage podcast. Kevin Bird and Willie B here with Fast, Jack Beckman, talking about top fuel, how to stage, and how to run like a maniac. Hey, Jack, walk us through that routine, you know, that repetitive part that you do each and every time you're starting to hit it. Yeah, let me tell you about the mental aspect of this, because the mental approach depends on what run it is. If it's your first qualifying run and the weather forecast is great for all day Friday and all day Saturday, in other words, you're pretty confident you're going to get four runs in, you know if it goes out there and does something silly, you step off the throttle and coast. If it's your fourth qualifying run and the bump spot's pretty soft, maybe it's like a 4.35 seconds and the racetrack's warm and you're not qualified, you know if it shakes the tires, you've got to pedal and you've got to be quick enough to get it to recover to get a good ET, but not so fast that, that you don't let the tires recover. And then if it's race day, it's all about getting to the finish line first. It doesn't matter if you've got a, if you're full throttle all the way or if you've got to pedal the thing three or four times. So I spend that time after I get strapped in the car and we're towing up, which is usually four pairs back from when we're going to run. So I've got 10, 15 minutes to go over that in, in my mind. All right. So we tow up there, tow to the water box. They pull the golf cart up with the, with the uh, battery packs on it, plug the starter in. It's hanging on the front of the car. Uh, when, when, when the pair in front of us runs, they're going to windmill the car over. The ignition system's grounded, the fuel system's shut off, and we're just going to spin the engine over to make sure there's no fuel vapor in the cylinders. And then when we get the signal from the NHRA folks and we coordinate with the other team, we're going to squirt some gas in the injector. The crew chief's going to nod at me. He's going to spin it over, pull the ground wires. It's going to, it's going to come to life, and I'm going to pull the fuel levers off with my left hand all the way back towards me. Uh, so we're in the run position. Then they're going to drop the body down. They're going to start pushing me forward. I'm just going to moderate the speed with the clutch. I don't ever drag the brake while the clutch is out. When I get the signal to do the burnout, we've got a limiter on the throttle cable, so it's only going to open so far. I'm going to smack it down onto that, and you're steering. And here's the wild thing. We hurt a lot of pistons in nitro cars 
on the burnout. And if you hurt it on the burnout, the rest of the run is affected. We call it putting a piston in the pan. And what it means is you've scuffed the liner, the rings are no longer seating, and when you go to mash on the throttle, when the Christmas tree activates to make the run, all of those combustion gases are getting past that, the piston rings and into the crankcase, and it's never a happy ending there. So to combat that, we got to give these cars a stupid amount of fuel volume on the burnout so we don't get a hot ring. Well, so what happens is sometimes on the burnout, since there's no load, we'll drop five cylinders. And if it does that, because there's also thrust coming out of the pipes and you lose that thrust, that car wants to cock 45 degrees to the side. And I'm going to tell you, that's the time that it's really fun because you got a yard on that <laughs> steering wheel, keep the car pointed straight, and you can't lift if it's crooked. You've got to wait till the tail end comes back around before you step off the throttle. That's kind of fun. I'm going to coast out there, shove the clutch in, put it in reverse, back up behind the starting line. They're going to guide me back into the spot that they want me. I'm going to pull up a foot just to make sure the car's in forward gear. Body comes up. They're going to go over the last minute fuel adjustment, idle adjustment. Body comes down. They're going to motion me up towards the starting line. And I'm going to pull up to where I'm just a few inches away from the pre-stage beam. So at this point, my crew chiefs looked over to the other lane which is really interesting when we have a four wide, because then you got to coordinate with three other crew chiefs and because you don't want to hang the other person out too long. So if their if their pre-race burnout backup routine is 10 seconds longer than ours, we let them fire up 10 seconds earlier and vice versa. So when he nods to me, I'm going to look at the Christmas tree. I'm going to release the brake, inch up with the clutch until I like pre-stage and I shove the clutch in, pull on the brake, wait till they like pre-stage and depending on what type of fuel system you run, some of the cars, you got to come full back on the fuel lever at this point. Um, you're going to take your, your left foot off the clutch, and I stick it underneath the clutch pedal. If the car had a firewall, picture I'm shoving my left foot all the way underneath and touching the firewall with it. I'm staring at the Christmas tree. In fact, I try to stare at the top amber. I usually won't even look at the, the stage bulbs. And then... With your foot off the clutch, you are holding the car completely with the handbrake. And it's, it's not a beast to hold. They idle at 2,500 RPM, but you got plenty of brake power there. So I'm just going to pump on the brake pedal lightly and try to inch that car in. And, and if you're doing a good job, you'll actually flicker the stage bulb. It means you're as shallow stage as possible. You've got the longest run at the ET clocks. You'll get the best possible ET. You won't get a great reaction time because you have a long run before you roll clear of the stage beam but you're looking for ET right here. By the way, I try to race that way too because you try to protect lane choice. Uh, Smart. So I'm going inch, to inch up, and as soon as I like stage, I'm yanking that handbrake back and holding the car. And then when that amber comes on, the goal is fire that right foot down as hard as you can. It's like you're trying to crush the throttle pedal through the chassis, and I'm putting my right hand back on the steering wheel. Then you pick a spot down track and look at it, and you look at that spot and stare at it because if that thing starts to wash out or move, you've got to correct it quickly and you've got to correct it smoothly. If you yank on the steering wheel, you're inducing a lot of lateral G in the car that can upset the rear tires. And if you don't correct fast enough, now instead of being one foot out of the groove, you're three foot out of the groove, six foot out of the groove, then it smokes the tires. So I'm finding my spot down track. I'm looking out there. If the car's running good and staying in the groove and it's responding to my steering input, about 600 foot, my right hand goes over the chute levers. At about 750 foot, I'm pushing them forward. At 999 foot, my right foot's coming off the throttle, and my right hand's yanking on the brake as quickly as I can. And then when I feel the chutes hit, 
I ease up on the brake handle. That way, if you have a chute malfunction, you don't end up in the sand. And twice Sunday at Pomona, we had an issue with the chutes, and I got the car stopped with tons of room because I didn't screw around there. Yeah, that's exciting, man. That's when you pick that spot, you know, down track. Is it in the middle of the track? Is it off to the side? Is it just something you're aiming for, or, or is it regardless? Yeah, well, give. Different drivers will tell you different things. I, I, my thought is your eyes better be at least 600 foot out in front of the car. An easy reference point is going to be the finish line right in the middle of your lane. The tough thing is, guys, at night, you can't see it. At some tracks, they're really well lit at night. And at other tracks, I walk up there 10 minutes before we're going to run, and I'm staring down them like, holy crap, either I'm going blind or they shut some lights off on me here. And it's funny because you try to be cool. You know, I'm a nitro funny car driver. I got this. And then after the session, you'll be talking to a few of the other drivers. You're like, damn, that was pretty scary. It was dark out there. And I, and I think to myself, okay, it's not just me. It's dark for them too. Talk about a day in the office, man. You know, I'm like, I'm trying to get the fax machine to work. You know, the printer's out of ink, right? Yeah. Like, oh you know, that God. routine though is probably... In a way, you're, you're saving grace. It gets you your game face on, right? I just read a study that talks about when people get their game face on, how much how much better they are at their game. I'm, I'm certain that allows you whatever that mechanism is, but to engage it and sort of figure out your attack. Yeah, yeah. No, good preparation leads to good performance, but you also have to have the right mindset. And I'm going to tell you, I have lots of preparation, and there's sometimes I don't have the right mindset, and it always shows on the starting line. I think once I floor the throttle, I'm as good as anyone out there. I, I've stumbled several times this year because my head wasn't where it needed to be at the starting line. But let me throw another thing in the works for you guys. Take a track like Pomona, right lane at Pomona. That lane, when you step on the throttle, tends to push you towards the center line. And it has a bump about 430 feet down track that is worse the further towards the wall you go. So the trick in that lane is let the car go one foot towards the center line early and then don't let it go anymore. It's going to suck you over towards the middle and you'll spin the tires. But don't overcorrect and get it back in the middle or slightly to the right because then the bump might unload further down the track. So throw that into the things that you're having to think about when you stage that car. Yeah, man, it's insane. All the tracks, all the different conditions, you know, and all the different things you guys face. It it really is. I mean, it's an alchemy of having great mechanics, a good, you know, crew chief, great driver, and all those things functioning and working together, you know, to get you to Sunday. You, you my man, have been through some just hellish, you know, incidences where – that didn't happen. You know, I've, I've seen you come out and walk away from some, you know, intense crashes and fireballs and just moments where everybody else would be like, oh, my God. And you seem, you know, you've been lucky over the years, man. What is, what is the hardest one in your memory to recall and kind of, kind of look back upon as far as, you know, on the, on the bad side of the days? Well, I just brought my spare helmet home from the trailer you know it'll travel all year on the circuit and then at Pomona I'll pack up my extra stuff and bring it home and I'm looking at my visor and it's blistered and the decals melted on it that was from Monday testing after the Phoenix race earlier this year and it was a big enough explosion it launched the body up in a thousand pieces and I've done that six other times but at the time in the car it didn't seem that bad but I'm looking at this burned visor and I'm thinking 
I am so thankful for people like Bill Simpson, who started making safety equipment to save our asses out there. And we, we, then he started the impact company, which is the stuff we use now, but we take all this stuff for granted because it works so good. So often you almost think that you're bulletproof. Now I'm not saying from an arrogant standpoint, you shouldn't go out there in a tank top and shorts and think you're not going to get hurt. But if you get in that car and you're worried that something can happen to you, you're probably in the wrong line of work. So my thought is I overprotect myself. I wear the thermal underwear, inner gloves, shoes under my boots, head sock under the helmet. Uh, and then you got to put that stuff out of your mind. But my, my worst explosion ever easy, 2016, Epping, New Hampshire, yeah. camshaft broke. And uh, it's huge. I mean, just Google Jack Beckman Epping. I think the last parts from that explosion just landed last week. It blew the car in half. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. It was it, unreal. Yeah, it blew the, the supercharger into chunks, and it was about eight inches from my face in the shutdown area. So once something like that happens, uh, to me, the fire is not the scary part, especially if the body comes off the car. You know the fire is not going to last long. And we've got a, a, a thermal paint coating on the underside of the bodies that makes them far more fire resistant than they were 30 years ago. The scary part is when it's hard to see because that oil gets blown all over your visor and everything's blurry in front of you. So you've already blown up. The body and the engine are ruined. Your goal right now is don't hit the wall and don't hit the car in the other lane. And most of the time you got oil on the tires and the car is bouncing up and down off the ground and you're trying to keep it straight as it's bouncing and be judicious with the brakes without skidding the thing and stuffing it into the wall. So, Willie, if you're saying I look cool once I get out of the car, it's just kind of that relief of you've had this enormous calamity happen and you managed to get this car stopped and you're still in one piece and you didn't wreck the chassis. So that's just a, a major relief factor there. So with all that in mind, right, all the things that could be going on, the 300 plus miles an hour that you're going into, when you get in that car and you get up to that starting line, do you still get any of those jitters or shakes? Do you get that adrenaline burst? Or is it just like routine? I've done this a thousand times, and I'm going to just do it one more time. I'm going to take you back to the mindset, depending on if it's Q1, Q4, or eliminations. Um, I, don't, I don't think that I ever give it more thought than it requires about the safety aspect. Uh, I put all my equipment on right. I make sure my equipment's in serviceable condition. They crush me in the car with the safety belts in there. And I think I'm as protected as I can be. The things that I get, quote unquote, worked up about would be the, the competition side of it. You know, are we qualified where we need to be? The track looks like it's garbage out there and I might have to pedal the thing and it's a hot day. Or here we go in eliminations and take Pomona, for instance. All we had to do was win Pomona and not have Robert Hyde in the other lane, and we'd be the world champions. Well, then all of a sudden in qualifying, Matt Hagen starts getting all the bonus points. So going into the last qualifying session, if we didn't improve, Matt Hagen would have bumped us down one position. We go out there and run low ET of that session and move all the way up to the number second spot. So even though we were solidly qualified, that was a potential high pressure moment for us because we had to keep him around behind us. Well, now we go into race day, and we, we have to go two rounds further than height. So if he wins that round, we've got to win that round and two more. So we go out and win first round. He wins first round. We go out against J.R. Todd, the defending world champion, in the second round, 
And it's a must win, must win, must win. And the last time I raced JR, he beat me on a whole shot. So it's that kind of stuff that can weigh heavy on your mind and feel in your gut. And, you know, on the good days, you rise to the occasion. And, and then there's other days that it's tough to separate the enormity of the moment from the ability to just go out there and do your job. All right, man, last question because we got to go. What was the name of the guy in high school that beat you at a race or had a cooler car? Or what was the car? Not your El Camino because that's, that's family. I'm excluding that one from this answer. What was the dream car you wish you had when you were in high school in the mid-'80s? You know, I, when I was 15, I always thought an Anglia would be the coolest. And it wouldn't have been a drive-around car. It would have been as a bracket car. It would have been the coolest thing. And it wasn't high school. The guy that beat me had a 69 AMX, and we were in the Air Force together. He was about three years ahead of me. So when I got to my permanent base in, in New Mexico, he was only one year away from getting out. And we raced a couple times on the street. And he beat me both times. I didn't have my nitrous either time, but you know what? He won both times. And uh, his name is Mike Pearson. He lives in Jupiter, Florida. We're still the best of friends today. I've still got the El Camino, and he's still got the AMS. That's great. <laughs> Ooh, I think it's time for a showdown. <laughs> well, look, Fast Jack Begman, we love you. We appreciate you, man. We sure appreciate what you bring, not just to the racing world, but to the Two Guys Garage podcast, my friend. Always a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for your time, Jack. All right? Yeah, Kevin Willie, thanks to you guys. Happy holidays to all the fans out there. And God, I'm looking forward to 2020 in the NHRA Mellow Yellow Series. I think we got a great hot rod. Uh, Infinite Heroes back on board. We still got the. Oh, guys, I get free use of a Charger Hellcat for a year. What? Oh, I heard about that, man. That's awesome. My man. Ooh, wide body? A yeah. wide body Charger? You wide body. Wide oh, body. Sexy, sexy, nice. Right on, Jack. Congratulations, man. We'll see you next year as always, okay? Happy holidays, Jeff. All right, brother. Take care. Take care, Jack. Man, how is that guy able to do so many things at such a competitive level, stay so humble, still so grounded, yet, man, he is he is such a competitor, such a beast, man, such a paradox, right? I've got two split emotions going on right now. One, I feel really small. And two, I want to go out and work in the garage because I want to make something go faster. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. You know, lots of you know, lots of things to be thankful for. Like he was talking about, you know, he's got to go back and start hanging lights for your kids, right? For for his daughter. Now your kid is how old? Man, he just turned three, so like the light bulbs are coming on. Uh, anybody out there with kids, man, they know kind of at that age, like. They know, like Halloween just rolled in, and he was so excited for you know Frankenstein and ghosts and bats right. and skeletons and and you know now he's learning what Thanksgiving is, uh, but you know he's plowing right past it. He's on the way to Christmas, so we're doing the same thing, man. We just got a little inflatable uh, snowman that he could plug in, and <laughs> the thing blows up, and boy, that that'll get him excited for a week. So that's all I got to do. But it's in stages, so like every week I'm gonna have to do another thing with him, like hang some lights and put up a Christmas tree. But it's gonna be awesome, and I'm I'm so thankful for it, man. That's that's my whole weekend coming up is uh you know playing with my little guy, being so happy that he's uh you know starting to pick up his little play tools, you know, or nice, he's got nice. a little plastic dump truck where you can take. Well, he's gonna need him if he follows in his dad's footsteps and a Ford lover. He's gonna need. I'm him. telling you, man. But you know what? <laughs> I, I've always told people my kid can be anything he wants to be, right? Uh, a writer or this or that, something completely non-car related. But he's gonna be a hell of a welder.
Nice. You know, he's going to have some skills, right? Yes. He can do whatever he wants and be whatever he wants. He's just going to know how to fix stuff, right? right? Build things. So <laughs> how about you, man? What are you grateful yeah. for? You know, it is that time of year. And for me, man, my daughter just turned eight months old. So she still doesn't get, she just sits there and is happy to see me, man. When I walk into the room and her eyes light up and her, you know, she puts on that crazy smile with those cute little snaggle teeth, bro. I, I just melt. So I'm anxious for the day that I can hand her a tool and teach her how to weld. Uh, but right now, man, I, I'm just a pilot and she rides right here, kind of in my chest. And I'm just running around a room and, you know, just try to make her laugh, dude. That's that's my goal for the weekend. Make my daughter laugh and then have some fun with the wife, man. You know, we get a long break, a long break for radio, that is. You know, we get like four days off. So it's like a little mini vacation. So the family's coming out, doing the whole Thanksgiving thing, which I believe we know is what it's truly about. Getting family together, grabbing some hours, some time, logging off the, you know, social side of things, logging into family time, kids you know, and the stories that always come across the table. So that's for right, sure, man. man, that's my week. That's my week. <laughs> well, to everybody out there, man, find what you're thankful for, embrace it. Hopefully you get, you know, some time off of work, whether it's one day, a couple hours, a nice break, get yourself a good meal, find yourself some friends and family and, uh, you know, treat yourself right. Eat a little too much. It's okay. Right. Get a little second helping, a little extra dessert. It's all good. Right? It's Thanksgiving, man. Oh, whatever, man. Have a beer and toast to the Two Guys Garage. We're on weekends on Motor Trend Network. Check your local listings if you don't know where that's at. Episodes also now streaming on Motor Trend On Demand. Thanks to our guest, man, Fast Jack Begman, Kevin Bird, Willie B, our producer, Scoop, our executive producer, Bob Ecker. Yeah, and don't forget to check out our website, twoguysgarage.com. Share with us your thoughts on social, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Two Guys Garage. Now, Two Guys Garage Podcast is a copyright 2019 Britain Productions Incorporated, all rights reserved. And we'll catch you knuckleheads on the next Two Guys Garage Podcast. Hey, Kev, pull my finger. <laughs> Two Guys Garage Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Britain Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.